I'd like to welcome you to Prairie View Christian Church this morning. We're glad you've chosen to worship here with us. Now, this morning, if you're a visitor, you're probably thinking, great, I came on a really, really bad week because we're starting a new sermon series on the subject of generosity. Over the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at generosity in three core areas of wealth. Wealth when it comes to finances, wealth when it comes to time, and wealth when it comes to possessions. Now, of course, the first week, we're going to get the hard one out of the way, and that's finances. Now, you may be thinking, you know, the last thing I want to hear about is being more generous with my finances with Christmas right around the corner, because I'm going to go broke buying Christmas gifts. I understand your struggle. I have a baby that should be due within two weeks. My wife and I are expecting our second child, and so I know a thing or two about wanting to save up and wanting to hoard as much of our money as we possibly can because babies are expensive. But here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, we absolutely must discuss generosity. Why? Well, number one, a significant portion of Scripture is devoted to this subject of generosity. In the Old Testament, the historical books, the books of the law, the wisdom literature, the prophets, all of them take time to focus on generosity. With the prophets in particular, they focus on generosity in terms of God's people being generous to those who don't have finances and making sure that they are not tempted to oppress those who have less than they do. In the New Testament, Luke records multiple acts of generosity in the book of Acts. Paul speaks about it on more than one occasion. James really hits on the idea of generosity, especially between fellow believers in Christ. But not only does Scripture speak about generosity regularly, Jesus himself speaks about generosity on a regular basis. At one time, Jesus was asked about money. Well, Jesus, do we pay taxes to Rome? And Jesus says, give to Rome what is Rome's and give to God what is God's. Jesus tells parables about people who are in crippling debt. He tells parables about servants given charge of their master's money. He tells one parable about a man who was given so much and yet chose to build a barn rather than help those in need and how that ultimately came back to haunt him. Jesus claims that he brings good news to the poor. Scripture speaks about it regularly. Jesus himself speaks about it regularly. But we also need to talk about it because generosity with our finances, if we're all honest, doesn't really come naturally. Even after we become followers of Christ, generosity is a discipline that isn't always easy to start and isn't always easy to maintain. And so being that it doesn't come naturally, if we don't talk about it, we're tempted to either neglect it entirely or to do it for the wrong reasons. And then finally, we need to talk about generosity because we don't want to talk about generosity often. Sometimes the things that we need to talk about most are the things that make us the most uncomfortable. Generosity, when it comes to finances, can be controversial. Our defenses can go up sometimes when we hear anyone tell us how to spend our money, especially those in the church. After all, the church, do we really have any credibility to talk about this? Throughout history, sometimes it's the church that has been on the forefront of financial scandal. 
This past week, October 31st, we celebrate not just Halloween, we celebrate Reformation Day, the day in 1517 where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And really what started it all for Martin Luther, this Catholic monk who was raised in the Catholic Church, his big opposition was the fact that the Catholic Church was going through financial corruption at the time. They were selling indulgences, basically the promise that if you buy this relic or if you buy this artifact and contribute money to the church, that way we can build a new cathedral, then your relative will get to leave purgatory and go to heaven, which purgatory is a whole nother can of worms that we're not going to get into today. One person even said when they were going around selling these indulgences, every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. So people would give their money to the church. But Martin Luther saw it as corruption, and rightly so. Thus, he ended up leading one of the biggest movements in all of church history, not just in church history, really, but all of human history with the Reformation. Now, unfortunately, modern times aren't that different from 1517. We still see corruption in the church. We see preachers using questionable funds for questionable purposes. We see churches that often are pretty foggy about reporting where their money comes from or where their money actually goes. Just recently, a megachurch pastor resigned after a string of scandal, one of the scandals being questionable use of church funds. So even though it makes us uncomfortable, even though we sometimes get defensive, even though the church has not been perfect when we talk about financial generosity or stewardship, this is something that we as followers of Jesus need to discuss. Scripture speaks too much about it to just sweep it under the rug. So with that, here's the good news. Whether you are rich or poor, Whether you're a regular or a visitor, whether you give a lot or give nothing, whether you tithe or don't tithe, I'm going to do my best to make you feel really uncomfortable. But we'll be all in this together. So with that, open up to Proverbs chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, feel free to use one of ours in the chair underneath you. Or if you don't own a Bible, grab one from the welcome desk before you leave today. But before we read Proverbs 10, 3 and 4, let's pray together. Father, you have been incredibly generous to us. The fact that we could wake up this morning, the fact that we could put on clothes, the fact that we could get in a car and drive here just shows how incredibly generous and how incredibly blessed we really are by you. But God, our ultimate blessing and the most generous thing that has ever happened in all of history is the fact that you gave us your son, that you sent your son to die for us on the cross, and for that we are grateful. And God, I pray that as we look at the cross, as we consider how generous you've been to us in giving us salvation that we could never deserve, God, I pray that will spur us on to be generous with one another, to be generous with those who don't know you, and to be generous to those who are doing your work in all kinds of different places. God, be with us this morning as we read your word. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, whatever it is that we might need from your word this morning. I pray that you'll do that, and we know that your word is sufficient. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 3. 
The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, we could just end the sermon right there. And a lot of us would be pretty happy. A lot of us read a passage like that and we say, all right, righteous people get taken care of. Unrighteous people don't get taken care of. Hardworking people become rich. Lazy people don't become rich. That all sounds pretty good. Let's just end it right there. But the truth is that we all know that's not really how the world works. And this is not all that scripture has to say about finances. Sometimes we can be tempted to take one passage that we really like and build an entire theological system off of it, especially when it comes to money. But we're going to look today at multiple passages of Scripture and try to get a comprehensive view of what the Bible has to say about finances and why it is that we're called to be generous. But one thing this passage does show us is that wealth is not inherently bad. There are extremes in the Christian community, and one of the extremes would say that wealth is inherently evil. Having money does not necessarily make you less spiritual, even though some people believe that. Not having money does not necessarily make you more spiritual, even though some people believe that. At one time in church history, the ascetic movement was really picking up stream, and it was the idea that people would voluntarily inflict punishment on themselves because they thought it would make them more pious. They thought it would make them more holy. They thought it would bring them closer to God. And so many of these ascetics would take a vow of poverty. They would give up everything. They would live in a cave. They'd have little to no food or water, hardly any possessions at all, maybe just the clothes on their back. They would be dedicated to fasting and to prayer as a part of this vow of poverty because they sometimes believed that wealth is an inherently bad thing. But that movement, which, believe it or not, does still exist today, even though it might be a little bit less spectacular, doesn't really jive with what scripture has to say. We read about men like Cornelius in the book of Acts, a centurion who came to faith in the gospel through Peter's preaching, and he was most likely a wealthy man. With his position as a centurion, he probably had some level of power, some level of influence, a pretty good amount of income. But at no point do we see in that passage any hint that Cornelius is to take a vow of poverty. In the book of Philippians, we read about a woman like Lydia, a woman who seems to have done pretty well for herself and as a result has been able to support Paul's missionary work, has been able to support Paul's church planting and maybe even lets the church in Philippi use her house that she can afford because she's done pretty well. We read passages like 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 17 through 19. Paul says there, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in that passage, we see Paul directly addressing wealthy Christians. And notice what Paul says. He says, don't be arrogant. He says, be generous with your finances. 
He says, use your finances for God honoring purposes. Share your finances with those who need it. But at no point does Paul say, take a vow of poverty. Wealth is not inherently bad in the pages of Scripture. When it's acquired through honest, hard, and just work, wealth can be a very God-honoring thing and can be used for very God-honoring purposes. But the other extreme would say that wealth is inherently good. And that just doesn't really match up with Scripture either. Some in the prosperity gospel movement would say that God's ultimate desire and God's ultimate blessing for people is to make them rich, to give them wealth. But the truth is that God's ultimate desire for us as his people is not that we be rich. His ultimate desire is that we find joy in glorifying him, whether we are rich or whether we are poor. Having wealth does not necessarily mean you've been blessed by God, because there are lots of unrighteous, dishonorable, unjust ways to acquire wealth, and God does not bless that. Not having wealth does not mean that you're cursed. If you don't have wealth, it doesn't mean that you just need more faith or that you just need more confidence in God. That's not the idea at all. So while wealth is neither inherently bad nor inherently good, and one isn't less Christian because they have money or more Christian because they don't have money, we do need to be realistic about one thing as followers of Jesus. We need to be honest about one thing as followers of Jesus, and that's this. Wealth can very, very, very quickly become an idol. Wealth is a very dangerous thing if we as followers of Christ are not careful. Look at Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. What I love about this proverb, the person who's writing this proverb, is that he is brutally honest with himself about his own potential to worship wealth. He's brutally honest about the fact that he is very much prone to make wealth into an idol. And so that's why he asks God, God, give me enough to get by. Give me the food that is needful for me, but don't give me too much more because I don't want to forget you. Give me a little bit because I don't want to steal and then dishonor you in that way. But more than anything, God, just give me enough to get by because I don't want to worship my wealth rather than you. Wealth can very, very quickly become an idol. We read passages in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, where Jesus says things like, You cannot serve both God and money. No man can serve two masters. Jesus makes it pretty clear there that wealth can become an idol. In some of Paul's letters, we read words like covetousness and words like greed and phrases like being a lover of money. Paul lists these things right along some of the sins that we elevate over others, even though we conveniently ignore the sin of worshiping our wealth. 
Scripture makes it clear that wealth can very, 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 very quickly take our worship away from God. But maybe the passage that speaks to that more than any other is Mark chapter 10. In Mark chapter 10, a young man comes to Jesus, a young man who's doing pretty well for himself, who has a lot of wealth, has a pretty healthy bank account, and he asks Jesus, all right, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, son, follow the law. Obey your father and your mother. Don't defraud anyone. Don't commit adultery. And the guy says, yeah, 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 I get it. I've been doing all that stuff my whole life. I've followed the law. And then Jesus levels a challenge at him. In verse 21, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, if we believe that wealth is not inherently bad, that would fly in the face of those who take this passage and say, every single follower of Jesus has to give up everything. Every single follower of Jesus has to take a vow of poverty. And some people interpret this passage in that way. But most likely the idea is this. Get rid of your idols, whatever your idol may be. Some of us, our idol may be our wealth. And some of us, our idol may be something else. Now that being said, The good news is that this command does not seem to apply to every single Christian. If it does, then we're all disobeying it. But here's the bad news. If you come across this passage and your immediate response is, okay, surely this passage can't apply to me. Surely I don't have to give up everything I own. Then the truth is that wealth might be your idol. After all, think about it. We read things like the Lord's Prayer, where the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread. We often say that thoughtlessly. But what if God really answered that prayer? What if God took away all of our surplus and really did just give us our daily bread? That's it. If God only gave us enough to get by for the next 24 hours, would we still be satisfied? Would we still worship him? It's a tough question to ask because it causes all of us to look in the mirror and maybe be a little bit honest about just how much we really do worship our wealth. Maybe more than we'd like to admit. Now, wealth in the hands of sinful people can quickly become what we worship. And every single one of us is sinful. You can be a capitalist or be a socialist. And because you're sinful, if you have wealth, it can become an idol. Wealth can be a rich person's idol if they refuse to share with anyone else, even though scripture commands it. Wealth can be a poor person's idol if they're willing to do anything that dishonors God just so that they can acquire that wealth that they don't have. Wealth is very much an idol if we're not careful. But like the other idols that scripture so often warns against, wealth will never be satisfied in it. We'll never be satisfied in those things that we worship apart from God. We read passages like Ecclesiastes 5.10. Solomon, a guy who knew a thing or two about having wealth, he writes this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. 
Wealth can very, very quickly be an idol. And we would do well to be honest with ourselves about just how prone we are to worship our wealth, to find hope in our wealth, to try and find security in our wealth, when really, only God can offer those things. So if wealth is neither inherently bad or inherently good, but if we know it can so quickly become an idol, what are we supposed to do as followers of Jesus? What should our relationship with wealth look like? Well, simply put, Christians are called to be generous. Craig Blomberg writes, If some level of wealth is desirable, we talked about Proverbs 30, that guy desires some level of wealth. He says, God, give me the bread that is needful for me. If some level of wealth is desirable, then all people should have a chance to gain it. If too much unnecessary wealth leads so often to sin, then those with excess amounts should divest themselves of it. These two truisms lead inexorably to a third. God's people should give generously from their surplus and be ruthlessly honest about how much is surplus. I think that last part is really important. Be ruthlessly honest about how much is surplus. Now, again, this does not come easy. This does not come natural to us. This flies in the face of our own desire for security and stability. And if we're prone to get defensive with our money, if we worry about how much we can spare, if we stress out about how much we do or don't have, what in the world would motivate us to give generously? Well, passages like Matthew 6, 33 can help. In that passage, we see Jesus speaking to his disciples about how it's so often tempting to worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat or where you're going to sleep or the things that you have or the things that you don't have. And Jesus essentially says, look, I get it. I understand you're worried about these things, but seek first the kingdom of God. All those things matter. But what matters more is the kingdom. Focus on the kingdom and worry about those things later. Trust God to take care of those things later. But then we see other passages like Luke chapter 6, verses 32 through 36, another passage that might have a thing or two to say about what should motivate us to give generously. Jesus says there, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those with whom, from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So what would motivate us to do this thing that is so unnatural? What would motivate us to be so generous with our finances? Well, number one, Christians give generously out of gratitude for what God has done. In that last phrase, be merciful even as your father is merciful, 
we see this idea of Jesus saying, look, look at what God has given you. Look at what God has done for you. And let that inspire you to be generous to others. Let that inspire you to show mercy to others because of how much mercy you know that you've experienced. This includes those people who are poor. This includes those people who are downtrodden. This includes those people who are struggling to barely make ends meet. Because God has been merciful to us, we are called to be merciful to them. Christians give generously not just out of gratitude, but Christians give generously out of obedience to Scripture. God is glorified when we obey Him. And He's glorified when we obey Him because we want to, not because we have to. Christians give generously because we desire to see fruitful ministry done. We give to churches and ministries that can help equip us to go out and love our neighbors and serve our communities and bring the gospel to those who have not heard it. We give to churches and ministries that can equip other people to love their neighbors and serve the community and take the gospel in other places. That's why we have Mission Sunday. So that we can be reminded of where our giving is going. That money is being given to Christians all around Hamilton County, all around the country, and all around the world. To bring the gospel to people who you and I will probably never, ever meet. And so we give to those ministries. We give to those churches. We give to those organizations so that they can do ministry that we would never have the opportunity to do. And we give to churches and ministries so that that church can do fruitful ministry. We ask that you give to Prairie View so that we can support other people doing ministry in all kinds of crazy places. But we ask that you give to Prairie View so that we can do ministry right here on this corner. So that we can help meet the needs of those people who regularly stop by looking for help with their rent looking for help with their heating, looking for help with their utilities, looking for help with anything and everything. So we ask that you give, that you trust that your finances are going to faithful ministry and fruitful ministry here. And that's why we're open and honest about where our money goes. That way you can have confidence that good, fruitful ministry is happening from the money that you give. So those are good motivations to give. Gratitude, obedience, desire to see ministry done, but there are also bad motivations to give. We do not give generously to pay God back for what he has done for us. We do not do it so that we can somehow make things square and make things even because God has done so much for us. We can never pay God back for what he has done, no matter how many checks we write. And if you have that motivation that I give to pay God back, then either A, you really overestimate the power of your wealth, or B, you really underestimate the significance of the gospel. Or maybe a little bit of both. Because if you look at the cross and you see Jesus' body broken and blood shed and debt and sin and pain taken upon him that we deserve. If you look at that and say, man, I really need to pay God back for that. I better write a check. Then we must not be looking at the same cross because you cannot pay God back for what he has done. We don't give generously so that we can gain leverage over other people. We don't give so that we can have more pull or more power in the church the next time a big decision comes along. 
We don't give so that we can hold it over someone's head next time we need a favor. You remember, I helped you out six months ago. Maybe it's time you help me out too. We don't give for the sake of leverage from other people. And we don't give for the sake of some type of return from God. We don't give because God has been obligated to bless us. We don't give because then God is forced to give us something in return. We give out of gratitude. We give out of obedience. We give out of a desire to see fruitful ministry done, knowing that we can never pay God back, knowing that we don't want any leverage over people. We give to people who don't have anything to give us in return. And we give to God, not expecting anything in return from him, only because we are so grateful for what he has already given. So it's not inherently bad and not inherently good, this wealth that we've been blessed with. But if we're honest, it can also become an idol. There are bad motivations for giving and there are good motivations for giving. But on a practical level, what does giving look like? How should we do it? How often should we do it? How much should we give? That gets into the last thing that we'll cover today. He who shall not be named in the church, the subject of tithing. Now, Scripture speaks about tithing regularly in the Old Testament. There are passages in the historical books, there are passages in the law, there are passages in the prophets that talk about tithing. But the truth is that in the New Testament, there's not much of anything about tithing. There's not much of anything about 10%. Now, some would take that and argue that, well, the Old Testament teaches 10% tithing, and so let's just continue doing that, because why mess with a good thing? Why fix what's not broken? That seems to have gotten us this far. But even then, tithing in the Old Testament isn't really the 10% that we sometimes think it is. If you took all of the Old Testament passages about giving and tithing and put them all together, a tithe would not be 10%. A tithe would be roughly 23 and one-third percent. Now, I doubt many of us are really that excited to give 23 and one-third percent with our tithes. It's not 10%. It's not that simple formula we're so often used to hearing about. Now, that 23 and a third percent, that's probably what the Jews in Jesus' time paid in their tithes, on top of a 50% tax to Rome, conservatively estimating. So if we're not actually going to enforce that 23 and a third percent, if the New Testament doesn't say anything about 10%, what do we ask of you? Why do we use that word tithe? Well, simply put, we ask that you be as generous as you can. It's that simple. For some, that will be more than 10%. Those of us who make a lot often look at that 10% number and we're tempted to say, all right, I've done my 10%. I've done my part. Now I can just be done with it and I can hoard the rest for myself. When really we could be so much more generous and still live more than comfortably. John Piper writes, as Paul said, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So why does God bless our people with abundance so that they can have enough to live on and then use the rest for all manner of good works that alleviate spiritual and physical misery? Enough for us, abundance for others. 
there isn't some simple 10% formula. We ask that you give as generously as possible. Over the past few months, the church has incurred an expense that we didn't budget for, that we didn't plan for, that just kind of comes about as we look forward into the future for the church and trying to be the best stewards we possibly can be. And this past week, an anonymous giver came forward and out of their own blessing from God, out of their pocket, gave close to $6,000 to cover this expense that the church has incurred. Now, I'm assuming this anonymous giver is not doing that because they didn't meet their 10% quota for October. I'm assuming they're not doing that so that they don't have to meet their 10% quota for December. That person was just generous. God had blessed them. They had a surplus. They saw a surplus. And they decided to bless the church. That's generosity. It's not some simple 10% formula. For some, generosity will be less than 10%. There are some people out there who truly could not make ends meet if they give 10%, period. That's just the way it is. And so many people hear that phrase, 10%, and give up on giving entirely. They say, if I can't give 10, then I'm just not going to give anything. But maybe you could give 2. Or maybe you could give 5%. Or maybe you could give a one-time gift to this church because you believe in the ministry that is happening when you get that tax return or when you get that raise. Maybe you could give a one-time gift to one of the missionaries that we support. Maybe you could give a one-time gift to Operation Christmas Child because you believe in what that ministry is doing. We simply ask that you be generous, whatever that looks like for you. Whatever you are convicted to give. As you examine your surplus, being ruthlessly honest about what your surplus is and then going from there. Ten percent might be a good starting point. It might be a good barometer, but it isn't some simple formula. In that same book, John Piper writes, if you want to be a conduit for God's grace, you don't have to be lined with gold. Copper will do. So we as followers of Jesus are called to be as generous as we can. We provide for ourselves, we provide for our families, but we also understand that there is nothing wrong with copper compared to gold. If we want to be conduits for God's grace, maybe we give up our desire to be lined with gold and we line ourselves with copper instead. We're as generous as we can be with those who are suffering. We are as generous as we can be to the church, to organizations, to missionaries who are doing God-honoring work in all kinds of different places. We don't do this out of guilt. We don't do this looking for a return on it. We don't do this looking for some type of leverage. We do this out of gratitude because of what God has done for us. We do it out of obedience to Scripture. We do it out of a desire to see ministry happen in the world. And we give generously so that wealth might not become our idol. And we rejoice in the fact that we have the one thing that is worthy of worship. That wealth, that finances, that silver, that gold could never replace. And that is the God who sent his son to die for us. He has been so incredibly generous to us. And so I pray that we would be so incredibly generous to others. Let's pray together. Father, again, you have given us so much more than wealth. 
You haven't given us just things that last in this life, things that corrode, things that eventually rust, things that eventually break down, things that eventually are outdated, things that eventually can be spent, and we won't see them anymore. You've given us something that is completely irreplaceable, and that is your grace, and that is your salvation, and that is your Son. And God, I pray that as we look upon the cross, as we see how incredibly, unfathomably generous that you have been with us, giving us something that we could never pay back, giving us something that we could never return back to you. God, I pray that will inspire us to know how loved we are, but also inspire us to be incredibly generous with anyone and everyone we see. God, thank you for the missionaries that we support especially on a day like this, Mission Sunday. Thank you for the work that they're doing. I pray that our church can be more and more generous with them as the years go forward. I pray that individually we can be more generous with one another when we see one another in need. That we can be more generous with those who don't know you in hopes that maybe that will build a bridge, that maybe that will open a door to where your gospel can be heard. And we can preach your gospel. God, thank you for what you've given this church over the years. Thank you for the people who have given faithfully to this church. So that we can do ministry. So that I can do ministry. And God, I pray that that faithful giving will continue. God, we love you. We praise you. And God, I pray that we will just seek first the kingdom of God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we close in 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, rather, Paul writes this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. God has made us rich in the things that truly matter, the things that only he can offer, the things that the cross and his son Jesus accomplish. So if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus yet, I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would give up your idols and worship the one true God, the only God who is worthy of worship. And that's not silver and that's not gold. Maybe you're a follower of Christ and you admit that, you know what? Yeah, my wealth has kind of become an idol. Feel free to talk to one of our elders. They'd be happy to pray with you and encourage you as you look for what comes next and how you can be more generous. But more than anything, talk to one of those guys if you don't know Christ. They'd be happy to share what he has done for them in their lives. They'd be happy to share answers to questions that you might have. And they'd be happy to pray with you in whatever you might need prayer about. So as we sing this last song and as we prepare to leave, take advantage of that as we sing.